hope, doubt. Hope, to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to be true or happen. Hope. Doubt, to fear, to call into question the truth of, to be uncertain about, to lack confidence in, to consider unlikely. Doubt. Hope and doubt, this is the human condition. Being in that condition is greatly exacerbated by living without Jesus. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Hope and doubt. I hope I'll be six foot three someday, but my dad's only five foot ten, so I doubt it'll happen. Sure enough, it didn't. Six foot and two thirds of an inch. Dang it. If I'd made it to six three, I would have had a pro football career. Oh well. Instead, I get to be a preacher. I'm happy I'd make the same choice again. I hope I'll be as attracted to my wife at 40 as I was at 20. My high school friends doubted that that would be the case. Every time I see them, I remind them that they stand corrected. It's been one of the most astonishing facts of my life that I love my wife more today than I did when I first met her. And my father told me about this. I was a teenager, what did I know, right? What do any of us know in our teens about life, love, and building a family? And my dad said to me, make sure you pick the right one. Because you're going to learn to love her more and more and more and more and more and more as you age. And trust me, son, if you're faithful to her, you will find that everything about your married life is better at 40 than it is in the early years. And he's continued to tell me that. He's now 60, my mom is 68. They're the most incandescently married couple I have ever seen. I was blessed to grow up in their household. My grandparents, the same way, loved each other right to the death. And I'm talking loved each other with a burning fire. But my high school friends weren't having it. No way. No way. I hope disaster doesn't strike us. I got to tell you, when it did in 2010, when disaster struck my family... It caused me to doubt the goodness of God. For real. It took me years to work through it. Years. I was pastoring at the time. It was very difficult to preach the light from the darkness. Very difficult. I almost lost my faith. I hope disaster doesn't strike. When it did, it caused me to doubt the goodness of God. I hope we'll win this football game says Todd, the coach. The question remains, will I be disciplined enough to fight through the doubt that will inevitably creep in in the fourth quarter? It's a terrible feeling. I start coaching a football game, my heart rate's 121, and it stays above 120 the entire time. My resting heart rate is 70. Fourth quarter, it sometimes jumps up into the 150s, like as if I'm running on a treadmill. I so care about these boys. I so care about them having a great experience. I so care about them achieving greatness. I so care about them learning from that achievement that they have great things in store. That I just can't bear the thought of them weeping as we work our way to the end zone and them looking at me with these stricken faces, having just been crushed by defeat. 
It's a hard sport to play. It's a harder sport to coach. Hope and doubt. Moving from hope to doubt and then through it is what we're trying to do with our lives. Thankfully, Genesis 15 should help. Take a look. I'm going to read you the whole chapter because I can't help it. It's absolutely incredible. Jordy, I'm going to read it from my Bible just so I don't stand in front of the projector so you can click as I finish the sections. I love you, buddy. Thank you. Ooh, this made me cry. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your very great reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. There's a spider on my pulpit. Now the spider's with Jesus. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. The Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But good old Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As, you, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Ooh. On that day, the Lord God cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Ooh, and may the Lord add his blessing. To the reading of his word. Genesis chapter 15. This is, without doubt, one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. I can say without equivocation that it is the greatest chapter 15 in all of Scripture. How do I know? Well, I checked. Genesis 15 is more important than Exodus 15 where uh, the song of Moses is occurring, which is a nice moment. They've just crossed the Red Sea, and he's singing, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Good old charismatics. They wrote some good songs in the 70s. It's more important than Leviticus 15, which is uh, full of laws about bodily discharges. Ew. 
More important than Numbers 15, which has laws about tassels. Can you believe the Bible contains laws about tassels? It's crazy. It's more important than Deuteronomy 15, which has laws about your sabbatical year. Just get a year off. Like, wow. Good thing Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, right? Maybe we should revise our vacation plans for next year. It's more important than Joshua 15, right? Joshua 15, the allotment for Judah is being explained. Judges 15, this is where Samson puts a whooping on the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. It's more important than Ruth because Ruth ain't got a chapter 15. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul crosses the line with God and gets whooped. Oi, 2 Samuel 15, Absalom the fool turns on his father. 1 Kings 15, there's two bad kings, Abiyah and Nadav, sandwiching a good one, Asa. There's five bad kings and two good ones in 2 Kings 15. Oh my gosh, I'm so bored. 1 Chronicles 15, this is a good one. David dances a jig in his underwear as the ark of the Lord returns to Jerusalem, causing his wife to despise him, causing her to be cursed by God. 2 Corinthians 15, Asa repents, turns the kingdom back to God. There's no 15 in Ezra, Nehemiah, or Esther. Job has one, and typical, it's depressing. Psalm 15 can stay. Actually, Psalm 15 is good. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his or her heart. She who does not slander with her tongue and does no evil to her neighbor nor takes up a reproach against her friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He or she who does these things shall never be moved. All right, we'll keep Psalm 15. Proverbs 15 is fine. There's point after point after point after point of wisdom. We got it, Solomon. You're the smartest man who ever lived. There's no chapter 15 in Ecclesiastes, and everybody said amen. Right? Neither is there one in the Song of Solomon. Dang it. I could have used a little more content in that book. Woo, wait till I preach on that one someday. When we really need to grow, I'll preach on Song of Songs, and you see what will happen. We'll have the systems in place to deal with it first. I love that book. Isaiah is pretty fixated on Moab in Isaiah 15. Things look very bleak in Jeremiah 15. There's no 15 in Lamentations. Again, hallelujah, let the Lord use you. Can you imagine if there were 15 chapters in that book? Lord, have mercy. And in Ezekiel 15, Jerusalem is a useless, useless vine. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all cry uncle and tap out when faced with the glory of Genesis chapter 15. They read it and said, I'm not even going to bother. You get the picture. This is one of the Great chapters in all of Scripture. Genesis 15 shows us why we can trust God and how to live as a result. There's your thesis statement. It shows us nothing less than why we can trust God and how we should live as a result. So let's unpack it. Beginning with verse 1. That was pretty quick. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After this. It's powerful in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew here it says Hayadvar. There was a thing. There was a thing. After that thing, there was a thing. And then the word of the Lord came to Abram. Look, you're a product of your experiences. Hayadvar, there was a thing. So don't make more or less of it than you should. It's just a thing. Hayadvar, there was a thing. 
right? There was a thing. Sometimes, don't you tie yourself up in knots because you're like, you obsess over these things that have happened to you in your life and you define yourself by these things that have happened to you in your life when all along it's just a thing. Right? You're a product of your experiences, but you're not, you're not your experiences. It's just a thing. Something happened to you. Fine. Let it be. That thing is not who you are. You are God's friend, and he's not finished with you yet. That'll preach. And then the word of the Lord came to Abram. Let those things be things. Stop obsessing over them. God's not finished with you yet. He's made you to be his friend, not the sum total of your life experiences. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. So look, your past may say some things about you. Fine. Fine, let it be. Whatever. Okay, your past may say some things about you. Your friends and your enemies may say some things about you. Whatever. It's a thing. It was a thing. What really matters is what God says. And the word of the Lord came to Abram. Sometimes what God says is a little crazy too. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. <laughs> a couple things from this. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Friends, the word of God comes to you. You don't have to work yourself up into a spiritual lather to try and find a way to communicate with God. It's his responsibility. The word of God comes to you. So if you've ever been spiritually obsessed, feel free to stop it after today. Don't have to be that way. Why? Because the word of God comes to you. Don't you think if God existed, if he really made everything that is, if he created everything that lives to be his friend forever, that he's pretty invested in the outcome? Right? Makes sense. And he is the God of the universe after all, so I'm pretty sure he's got the bandwidth to deal not just with Saturn, Jupiter, and the cosmos, but also with you and me. So relax already. Calm down. Because you know that the word of God comes to Abram, and so it will for you. The word of God comes to you. Second point, supernaturally. <laughs> In a vision, bemachzeh. The word of the Lord came to Abram, bemachzeh. It came to him in a vision, bemachzeh. In a seeing. Literally in a seeing. I love it. Okay, I'm not asking you to like whip out your charismatic banners and start running around the church and worship. I don't care about any of that stuff. Right, the particular symbolism, the particular way in which you express your supernatural relationship with the God of the universe doesn't really matter to me because there's many, many, many of us and each of us experience God in unique ways. So I'll celebrate the way in which you express your supernatural relationship with God. I'm just deeply concerned as your pastor about your supernatural relationship with God. You need to get comfortable with not being a materialist. I'm going to put this in secular vernacular, so if you're a church person, please don't be offended by this. But as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who has a relationship with the God of the Bible, you need to be able to testify, I still believe in magic. And I mean small m magic. I don't mean the kind of magic that you're thinking I'm talking about. Like I said, it's a colloquialism. You still need to believe in the supernatural. You need to believe that there's something beyond the mundane every day. That there's more to life than just matter. God speaks to Abram in a vision. There's a supernatural thing happening here. And because you're a non-materialist, 
in fact, only if you're a non-materialist, will you be comfortable with having God as your reward, right? Because when you are a non-materialist, you believe that God is a spirit. You believe that he made everything that is including you to be his friend forever. When you believe that, it immediately reorients your sense of what's what and what matters. Because you're like, okay, all these things, thank you, they're gifts from God. We use them for the provision of our family and for his glory as we join him on his mission and culture to seek and save the lost and to work towards the renewal of all things. But we're certainly not going to allow ourselves to get hung up on it. It's just a thing. I'm, I'm leveraging my life on the supernatural. Only when you can say that can you say the following, that God is my portion. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. That's what it literally means in the Hebrew. The English translation falls down here a little bit. It's much more powerful in the Hebrew, isn't it? I am your shield. (laughs) I celebrate every time there's warrior imagery in the Bible. I am your shield, your very great reward. From this we get, God is our portion. Okay, God is your portion. It's very good to remind yourself of that frequently. You get all uptight about you didn't get the raise you were looking for, you didn't close the deal you were hoping you'd close. You know, you're facing scarcity or uncertainty in a particular aspect of your life and you're stressing about it. It's very important in that moment to be able to say, hang on a second, put the brakes on. God is my reward. Okay, so you can ask yourself the following question this week. Am I really living like Jesus is enough? And if you find that hard, you're not the only one. Good old Abram. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. I just want to point out that Abram has grave doubts about God's promises. God originally made his promise to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. His first interaction with Abram is when Abram is 75 years of age. You'll find out later on in Genesis that God does not fulfill his promise to Abram until after he's 100 years old. 75, 85, 95, 6, 7, 8, 9, it's 25 years will give you such a crick in the neck. <laughs> He's got grave doubts about God's promises and therefore grave doubts about his future. I hope God's promise will come true. I will make of you a great nation. But right now, Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. This is my favorite part of the sermon right here. I can't shout. Aha, says God. What did you just say? Um, Eliezer is my heir. Say it again, says God. Um, What, the heir part? No, no, I got the heir part. I understand. Yoresh, it means tenant, right? It's very closely connected to the idea of shoresh, which means root. We're talking about tenanting, rootedness, putting down roots, staying a while, maybe staying forever. I got that part. Say the first part again. Um, Eliezer, stop, says God. What does Eliezer mean, my friend, asks God. Um, My God helps me, says Abram. That'll preach, says God. 
<laughs> I saw that this week. I was like, this, preach, this sermon is going to preach itself. Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. God is your help is my heir. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. God is your help is your rootedness. God is your help is the one who's going to allow you to stay for a while. Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. God is my help is my heir. Eliezer. Eliezer, my God, is my helper. Friends, God has already helped you even before you knew you needed help. Somebody shout, hello. Before you even knew your wife was barren, Eliezer of Damascus was growing up in your household to one day prophesy to you with his name that God's in charge and he's got this covered. Hallelujah. Oh, he's already helped you even before you knew that you needed help. Um, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed of me, when as yet there was none of them. New Testament. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. <clears throat> Thank you, Dave Barker. God's already helped you through Jesus. God is helping you because of Jesus. God will help you in Jesus. Because though our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell from grace and fell into sin and curse and death as a result... And though they were cast from the garden and sent out to suffer and build their life as best they could, far from the protection of God's presence in Eden. And though their offspring grew up, each one born with a sin nature. And though wickedness spread within generations to cover the face of the earth to the point that God himself wiped it out with the flood, saving for himself a righteous remnant. And though Noah and his descendants fell into that same pattern again and again and again. And though throughout the history of God's people, they never once perfectly fulfilled his holiness. He did not leave us alone, but in the fullness of time, according to his mercy, God the Father sent God the Son into space-time history to become man, fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And this good man, this God-man, lived among us, walked among us. He was tempted in every way in which you'll ever be tempted, yet he was without sin. He perfectly fulfilled God's holy law. And when he was hung in the fullness of time, according to the scriptures on a cross, to suffer and die in your place for your sins between two thieves, he suffered in ways in which you'll never suffer because God the Father placed on him the iniquity of us all. 
And he suffered, and he died, and he was banished from the bosom of the Father. But the gospel tells us that he did not stay dead, but he rose again the third day, that first Easter Sunday morning, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. He arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He rose victorious over the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. And then a few weeks later, he ascended right in front of his disciples' eyes to the right hand of the Father where he sits even now cheering for you, making intercession for you from whence he will come again in glory someday to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you, my friend, have a place. In fact, you have so much of a place that right now he's busy building your house in the new Jerusalem. He has helped you. He is helping you. He will help you. In the words of the great theologians, you have been saved from all eternity in the heart of God the Father. You were saved in the work of God the Son, in his incarnation, in his sinless life, in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And you are being saved as you respond to the call of God the Holy Spirit to walk in that which has been accomplished for you. My friends, God has dealt directly with your sin problem in Christ, just like he dealt directly with Abram's doubt. Look at verses 4 through 6 in our base text. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you can. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Get outside, lift up your eyes, number the stars if you can. Because God has already helped you. If I was Nas and I had a mic, I'd drop the mic. Come on now. Get outside. It's like he he took him, he manhandled him. He took him outside. Get outside. Friends, move from where you are. You haven't moved from your routine in a long time? You might be missing out on the great opportunities of faith. Move from where you are. Take one step, and then take another. And then take one step, then take another. He's not asking you to run a marathon tomorrow. He's asking you to take one step, and then another. Go ahead, man. Move from where you are. Discover something new, and lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and consider the heavens, my friends. Elevate your perspective. You're looking to get through doubt and move towards hope? Elevate your perspective. Get some heaven in view. Oh, hallelujah. And dream an impossibly big dream for your life. Count the stars if you can. He's given them an impossible command. Friend, it's time for you to start dreaming again. 
Count the stars if you can. You'll know that Jesus is starting to take root in you when belief bursts in your breast, even in the face of or in the midst of doubt. And he believed the Lord. And the Lord accounted it to him as righteousness. (laughs) He believed. Belief springs forth in him. It comes to life in him. Why this emphasis in this church on experiencing the life of God in Christ? Why? Because as you experience the life of God in Christ, the life of Christ begins to blossom in you so that you find yourself in a situation where you're in doubt and hope springs forth unaccounted for for no reason other than the fact that the God of heaven has taken up residence in your heart. Do you see? Man, doubt ain't scubala when faced with Jesus. Like, is he speaking in tongues? No, he's quoting Philippians 3.8. Check it out yourself. Doubt ain't nothing when faced with Jesus. You need to be very encouraged. Especially as you see questions remaining for Abram, even after belief has blossomed in his heart. Verse 8, but he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Do you see? He has doubt. Belief springs forth, and then doubt shows up again. If this is the pattern in the patriarch's life, don't lose hope if that shows up in you, which is why God makes a promise to Abram that hinges on God. (laughs) Yeah, I'm almost done. Worship team, you better come join me. Okay? Doubt, hope, then doubt comes back in the patriarch's life. So why should you expect that it should be any different for you? Which is why God knowing that this would be the case with Abram and God knowing that this would be the case with us, this is why he makes a promise that hinges on his performance, not ours. As we read in Genesis 15, 9 through 21. But he said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought them to him, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses. When they did so, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, notice this, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age, and they will come back in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates the land of the Kenites the Kenizzites the Kadmonites the Hittites the Perizzites the Rephaim the Amorites the Canaanites the Girgashites and the Jebusites what's happening here God's going to cut a covenant literally cut in the Hebrew a covenant with Abram And to do so, he enacts an ancient Near Eastern land-grant treaty blood covenant with a built-in self-maledictory curse. Everyone in that age of the world would have known what this meant because he doesn't even have to tell Abram what to do. He just tells him to bring the stuff, and Abram knows, oh, i got to cut each of these down the middle, lay them out in a row with half on one side and half on the other side because he knows that when you were exchanging land in the ancient Near East... 
and there were some covenants that needed to exist between you that governed the exchange of that land, you did this exact same thing. You cut these animals in half, and then you paraded through the wreckage, proclaiming the requirements of the covenant. And the self-maledictory curse that was built into this ritual was such that you were saying, may it be done to me as it has been done to these animals if I do not hold up my end of the bargain. And both parties walk through because both parties in a covenant have to hold up their end of the deal. Do you see where this is going? Ultimately, God's covenant to Abram is most clearly expressed in Genesis 17. We'll get there in two weeks. He says to Abram, in effect, I will be your God. You will be my person. This is the same thing God is saying to you today. I will be your God. You will be my person. But the best part is revealed in holding verse 12 and verse 17 together. In verse 12, what happens? After he has set the covenant up, Abram falls asleep. And so in verse 17... God enacts the covenant by himself. He walks through the carcasses alone. Jesus Christ hangs on the cross alone. In Genesis 15, we see the most beautiful prefiguring of the cross of Calvary I know of in Scripture. God doesn't make Abram walk through because God knows that Abram is not going to be able to hold up his end of the bargain. God knows that one day he's going to send his son and his son will be pierced because you can't hold up your end of the bargain and neither can I. Which is why God walks alone. He walks alone. The covenant hinges on God's performance, not yours. Which is why, even when I'm facing doubt, I hope.